Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Ian Lee. Ian is an associate professor at Carleton University in the Sprott School of Business. Prior to being a professor, he was employed at the BMO main office branch, fourth largest in all of Canada at the time, as a loan and mortgage manager lending millions of dollars in mortgage loans. Over the years, Ian has appeared extensively in the media, including CTV, Global News, and CBC Radio and Television. Since 2008, Ian has appeared by invitation before House of Commons and Senate Finance, Banking, Industry, and Trade Committees 25 times concerning public policy debates. He has been invited by Global TV to attend every federal budget lockup as one of their expert witnesses since 2008. In my interview with Ian, we discuss the housing plans of the Conservatives, Liberals, and NDP in the 2019 federal election. Topics include the 30-year amortization, mortgage stress test, first-time home buyers incentive, and foreign buyers tax. Without further ado, here's my interview with Ian Lee. Hi Ian, how are you doing today? Uh, good afternoon, Sean. Doing fine, thank you. That's great to hear. Looking forward to discussing the main three political parties' election platforms in terms of housing. There's a number of interesting items out there, and I thought that you'd be the perfect person to discuss them with. My great pleasure. I'm a former mortgage manager from many years ago in the 70s and 80s, although the principles of mortgage lending haven't changed. I lent millions of dollars in the fourth largest branch of the Bank of Montreal uh, in Canada at that time, which was Ottawa main office where I was the mortgage manager. I had about a quarter of a billion dollars of, of mortgage receivables outstanding, which back in the day, that was a lot of money. Well, it sounds like you're very qualified to talk about this topic. Let's get started with the Conservative Party. So we'll just talk about two or three items each of the parties are proposing. The first item that the Conservatives are proposing is changing the stress test to help first-time homebuyers access mortgages more easily, as well as removing the stress test completely for renewals. So I guess my two cents, first and foremost, is I like the proposal about removing the stress test for renewals because the rules that they way they are now, it's handcuffed a lot of borrowers and basically they're stuck with their current lender and their lender doesn't have to offer them a very competitive options. I'm all for that option there, but I just want to get your thoughts on that as well as changing the stress test for first-time home bars. I guess we don't know right. how they would change it, but just want to get your thoughts and do they even have the authority to kind of do that as well? Right. Because I thought that's all right. I see. 
There's been a lot of uh, comment. I've seen some of the comment on social media, and I think there's a lot of people that really don't understand what's going on because they're so focused. They say, oh, my God, you're going to create an American-style situation. Uh, I did papers at the time of the 2009 financial crisis, and I did a lot of media, and I argued that the, you just cannot draw parallels between Canada and the States. We're two very, very different systems in terms of regulation, in terms of the rules, in terms of the norms. We're a far more conservative system. I'm talking mortgage lending. And mortgage regulation has always forever in my lifetime, and I'm 65, has been a much more conservative system than the U.S., which we and many of us characterized as go-go banking system, you know, like go-go dancers in the late 60s, much more aggressive, much more liberal, and much more uh, lacking prudential policies. That's my preamble to what I'm about to say. I testified in 2009 before the House Commons Finance Committee, arguing that we had gone from one extreme, extremely conservative lending policies for the last 40, 50 years, to we'd gone overshot and become too liberal. We'd over-liberalized the rules. And I mean by that, that we had went out to a 40-year amortization, and we had reduced the down payment, and we'd reduced a whole bunch of uh, prudential rules. And so we had gone from one extreme, too conservative, we had uh, become too liberal. And I argued we had to start dialing back and cutting back on this uh, liberalization. And in fact, and it wasn't because of me, others were saying this, in the following years under Flaherty and later under Morneau, the government successively tightened, 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 tightened. And I argue now that we went from too conservative, we overshot the mark, went too liberal, and then we ran to the other side of the boat, and now we've made it again too conservative. In other words, we overshot the mark yet again. And a good example is applying these rules to refis. And this is just silly. I mean, they're already on your books. Their customers on your books. You made the decision to lend to them. And going to somebody five years later and say, you know, because the rules are more stringent and you don't qualify, even though you've already got the mortgage money, we're going to now evict you, foreclose on you. This is silly. This is irresponsible. And I thought that applying the rules to people who already had the mortgage approved and was on the books was just overkill and demonstrated a lack of understanding of mortgage financing. And yes, I understand it came out of the finance minister's office, but that doesn't mean that every finance minister has a deep and profound understanding of mortgage lending. So I strongly agree that the rules should not apply to, to somebody who's renewing their mortgage. In terms of the actual stringency tests, as I said, I believe we've overshot the mark. We've made them too difficult, too stringent. And that doesn't mean we go to American go-go banking lending, not at all. When I was a mortgage manager, we did 25 years. I thought that was too conservative. I think 30 years is the sweet spot. 35 and 40 is too long. 25 is too short. I think 30 years is the Goldilocks sweet spot. And in, in those days, you know, you had to have 10% down when I was a mortgage manager. And every mortgage high ratio had to be insured, still is. Americans have never had such a rule, by the way. So backing off on these overreactions of the past two, three, four, five years is prudent. And so I support and I think that Mr. Shear's proposals 
on mortgage lending on a slight uh, relaxing of the overly stringent rules is appropriate and prudent. And of course, he has the authority. Some people say the superintendent of financial institutions is completely independent. The superintendent of financial institutions reports to the minister of finance. Yes, they're a quasi-independent body, but the idea that they cannot, that they have no supervision and that they are completely independent of parliament and the government of Canada is, I just think, shows or reveals a lack of understanding. That's never been the case in our country. Great. Thanks so much for your insight on that, Ian, and I agree completely with you. I mean, the rules, the way they stand now, if you choose to renew your mortgage with your current lender, you don't have to pass the stress test unless you're refinancing. But even if you're leaving the mortgage the way it is and you're switching to another lender and not refinancing, you have yeah. to pass the stress test. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It just kind of only yeah. helps the profits of the big banks. And 30-year amortization, in terms of first-time home bars trying to afford homes in like like Toronto and Vancouver, I mean, that would certainly help them. The stress test has not. I'm all in favor of that as well. So glad yes. to hear that you're yes. on the same page. Yes. We've talked about the main items that the Conservatives are proposing. Let's move on to the Liberals. I interviewed you uh, about a month back about the first-time home bar incentive, and it's been a slightly tweaked since then. When we last spoke back then, the biggest criticism was that it wasn't going to be helping more expensive housing markets like Toronto, Correct. Vancouver, and Correct. Victoria, but the Liberals have actually tweaked it. Coincidentally enough, when there's an election going on, I wonder if that's a just a coincidence. But anyways, they're basically proposing to expand the incentive to assist with homes up to nearly $800,000 in the markets of Toronto, Vancouver, mm-hmm. and Victoria. Mm-hmm. And this is through the first time home bar incentive, which is essentially yeah. a shared equity mortgage. So perhaps you could just briefly talk about what a shared equity mortgage is and what your thoughts are in terms of the tweaks. Like, does this make this program a lot more useful in those markets? By increasing the cap significantly, it clearly addresses the criticism that I and others were making that it doesn't help in the most challenging markets, which we everyone knows in our country is Toronto and Vancouver. And when I say Toronto, I mean the, the greater Toronto area and the greater Vancouver area where house prices are just astronomical. Yes, it goes a, a bit of the way. My criticism remains, and there's two separate criticisms I make. One, let me do the macro criticism. The problem of affordability in these two markets, and I'm talking the GTA Toronto area and the the greater Vancouver area, is a fundamental mismatch of supply and demand. CMHC alluded to that in their study a year ago, and any serious person who understands real estate, you know, understands that there's a very pronounced relationship between supply and demand. That is to say, if there's a, a shortage of housing coming on the market, the market responds by the the people beating up the inadequate supply. There's been people trying to argue that there's no relationship. You know, the same people that support carbon tax will then turn around and say, but there's no relationship between supply and demand and, and the price and the desire for that property. Where I'm going with this is, is that any attempt to deal with lack of affordability that doesn't address the supply shortage is not going to solve the problem. And so there, the fundamental problem is we've got to deal with the mismatch, the shortfall of supply, or this problem is not going away. A very, very high house prices in those two markets. My second criticism is more of a, shall we call it a policy criticism. CMHC 
has a role to play, meaning it, it provides a, a default insurance, insurance against default for high ratio customers. That is with people with who have a less than 20% down payment. And I think that we are putting this policy proposal is putting them in a conflict of interest because their job is to insure against default and they charge a premium for that, as we know. Now we're saying we want them to become essentially co-owners of the property. What happens when that property owner, some will become delinquent? And you know this is gonna put CMHC in a really difficult position because on the one hand, they are a co-owner with the homeowner. On the other hand, they're insuring against default, insuring the bank, the lender against default. And so I think this calls into question, is it the role of government, whether you call it CMHC or any other agency, that they are supposed to become co-owners with individual citizens of real estate? If we really do believe that the problem is you know, an inability to afford that house, and we're not willing to address the supply side, well, then the answer in classical terms, and I'm talking, we know this from a very long time in, in economic theory and practice, is that you subsidize them. You give a subsidy to those people that be you believe there's a public good involved, people that can't afford basic needs. They can't afford food and groceries. Well, we invented and created social welfare, social assistance, and it's, it's a straight subsidy. And we have subsidies for senior citizens called guaranteed annual income to bring their income up. We subsidize them up to a certain level. And that's the proper response. It's the least interventionist response where we have a market failure of any kind where some people are, are not able to afford something that we deem necessary. So the proper response, rather than co-ownership, is to say, well, then let's subsidize with suitable checks and balances and rules and so forth. Let's provide them a subsidy. And there is a long history of subsidies in Canada for different types of people, for different types of programs. And so I don't believe that going down the road of co-ownership with the CMHC in bed with the homeowner is the way to go. If we want to encourage those people and we believe they're worthy of assistance, such that we think that they, they should become co-owned by CMHC, well, then why don't we do it directly and give them, as I said, a subsidy directly to them that would be taxable? Well, that's a great way that you put it, Ian. And the way I see it, the government made the rules so strict that these people are having difficulty qualifying and then the government's taking a piece of ownership in the properties. This doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And what if we had some sort of housing correction that's putting the taxpayers' exactly. money at risk as well? So this policy just doesn't seem very well thought out. Great. And one other thing that the Liberals are proposing is implementing a national 1% speculation and vacancy tax. So just wanted to get your thoughts on that, Ian, and whether you think that will make an impact at all, or whether you think that the individuals that they're targeting will just figure out a way to avoid the tax. I don't believe it'll make an impact because what they're now trying to do is interfere with the price system. And so what economists call price discovery, and that's good old fashioned supply and demand. We have fluctuating markets. We do not believe in price regulation. We don't regulate the price of cars. We don't regulate incomes. We don't have wage and price controls. We tried that in the 70s under Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and it was widely considered to be a colossal failure. We don't believe in the idea of regulating prices of anything. We don't regulate the price of tractors or other private goods. 
I'm not talking government goods because government in providing certain goods by definition has to set the price because they're the provider. I'm talking private goods and private marketplaces. And I think this is a terrible mistake, not, not just because of the obvious definitional problem with speculation. I mean, what on earth is speculation? Well, they say it's anybody who sells the house in less than 12 months. Well, that doesn't mean you're speculating. It might mean you've been transferred or somebody, you're uh, an ancient and elderly relative died and the estate has to liquidate the, the house because the relative that owned the house has died and has passed it on to the kids and they're in another city. I mean, there's so many problems with the definition. But beyond that, even if we, they claim that we can get around the definition of speculation, is it the role of government to start through the back door to fix and regulate prices? I don't think so. They're the last people on all of Canada that I want regulating prices. We have a market economy where markets reflect and prices reflect the relative balance or imbalance in supply and demand. And what this is doing is interfering with the price system and the price mechanism and the price signaling that prices represent to go after, in some instances, with depending on the party, they want to go after an easy bogeyman called the foreigner which I just think there's a bit of discrimination there too, by the way. We're targeting foreigners because they're somehow bad people because they're coming to Canada and buying a house. We don't stop foreigners from buying cars in Canada or buying soft drinks or groceries or I can go on and on. Why on earth are we suddenly saying, well, this particular issue requires some kind of restrictions on them? So whether it's a speculation tax or a foreign buyer's tax, they're both interferences, unjust, unjustifiable interference in the market clearing system and the price setting uh, system in the economy. It is, I think, an excuse to divert attention away from the real problem, which is that governments have deliberately restricted very, very deliberately restricted the supply of new uh, land and housing onto the market, which has been the driving force. By creating these shortages, they've caused prices to go through the roof, which is merely buyers responding to the shortage uh, of supply. And, and that is shortage of supply has been created by very deliberately by government policy, by government uh, councillors and provincial governments that talk about their opposition to urban sprawl. And urban sprawl is a pejorative term for ordinary people wanting to buy a home in the suburbs. If you're going to have growth in any country because you bring in immigration, which I strongly support, I strongly support immigration. We need immigration. Our country grows every year. So, of course, there's an increased demand year by year by year for more housing because our country is getting bigger in terms of people. And then they want houses and they want homes. And so then we turn around and say, oh, well, you know, you're bad people because you want to go to the burbs and buy a house. Well, of course, young people starting out are going to go to the burbs because that's where the least expensive housing is. Well, to summarize, the, the, the liberal proposals, in my view, are both band-aids. They are not going to deal with the structural issue facing real estate in Canada, especially in the two biggest markets, Vancouver and Toronto, which is a fundamental mismatch between supply and demand. There's a mismatch because there's a belief in these two regions that urban sprawl is a bad thing and they're trying to stop it. All urban sprawl is, it represents the growth of the population because we have immigration, our country's growing, which is a good thing, and more people 
uh, come into each of these big cities, they need houses. And because they're first-time homeowners, they go to the burbs because the houses are cheaper. However, governments in both these two uh, regions have deliberately set up policies to deliberately restrict the supply of new land and new housing coming onto the market. And that created an imbalance in supply and demand. And so there's a shortage of supply. And so the buyers are beating up the prices of the remaining supply that's on the market, which is inadequate. So this is a government-created, socially engineered problem. And the solutions such as co-ownership by CMHC or the subsidies and that sort of thing are merely band-aids on the much bigger structural problem. And it requires structural solutions. And actually, none of the political parties are providing structural, permanent, enduring solutions to the problem of lack of affordability of a home in Canada, especially in the two largest markets. Very well said, Ian. As I like to say, Canadians don't just need affordable housing, they need housing that they can afford. And that's a big issue. While I think that some platforms are more helpful than others, I don't think it's magically going to help first-time home buyers get right. into markets in those expensive areas there. I think if you look at the liberal plan, I mean, if you have any sort of sense, you just do a bit of thinking into it and reading into it. I mean, it seems to me that the liberals are just looking for some sort of short-term fix and trying to kind of pull the wool over yeah. the eyes of Canadians. And this is coming from somebody who has voted liberal in the past. So I'm definitely not saying something about the liberals because they don't vote for them. But yeah, it just doesn't seem like good policy as far as I'm concerned. Right. I mean, to be fair, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to make this partisan. I don't believe any of the political parties are addressing the real problem because it's become very uh, fashionable, I guess is the word, to believe that this, quote, urban sprawl, end quote, is bad, bad, bad. And all urban sprawl is, is the growth of a city of new homes and new suburbs and new projects on the edges of an existing city as the existing city grows bigger in terms of the number of people. And in any country where the total population is growing, which is Canada and the United States, because of immigration in both countries, which I support, the, each city gets bigger year by year. And that means more people move into the city. Those people need housing. So they go to the edges of the city called the suburbs to buy new homes. And this idea has emerged. It's very popular in some, especially in urban planning centers, that this urban sprawl is bad and we've got to stop it. And we'll stop it by restricting the flow, the, the, the development of new land, serviceable land and property. And this is extremely naive because it assumes that those people will somehow just give up and say, well, that's it. I'm not going to buy a house. And human behavior in Canada is very clear. People want to own a home. I bought my first home in the suburbs, in a brand new suburb of Ottawa at that time in 1976. And that's how we've responded to growth in the population. We build new projects, new suburban complexes on the edges of the city. When we stop that or try to radically slow it down, we don't make the demand go away and disappear. All it means is people bid up those prices of the remaining inadequate supply. No political party is addressing this problem. Not the Liberals, not the NDP, not the Greens, and not the Conservatives.
Speaking of the NDP, let's just quickly look at the NDP and what they're proposing. So I've already gotten your thoughts on the return of the 30-year amortization. So the NDP is also proposing that for insured mortgages for first-time home buyers. So I've already got your thoughts on that. So yes. Uh, So what they're also proposing is to double the home buyer's tax credit to $1,500. Just wanted to quickly get your thoughts on that, Ian. Will that make any sort of impact at all? No. No, it's pure band-aid. I mean, when you consider that the average house price in any city other than Toronto and Vancouver is around 400-ish. Ottawa's about 400000 $430,000 for a house. And that's, that's normal, okay? And in other cities, I think, across Canada, excluding Toronto and Vancouver, it's somewhere in that ballpark. $1,500 won't even pay the legal fees to close a house today. It's so trivial. It's so tiny. It's so infinitesimal. It doesn't address the problem. This is my criticism of it. It's a Band-Aid on a tiny little Band-Aid on a very large problem, which is the high prices and, and which have been driven by inadequate supply. And I know there's lots of people who disagree with me on that point. And all I have to do is point, to, point anyone and look at American house prices in many different cities. And you can actually compare cities and states where they restrict supply to those states where they don't restrict supply. And the the states where they do not restrict the supply in any significant way, land prices and house prices are much cheaper. So you look at states in the American South, including Texas, and land prices and the average price of a house is cheaper because it's a lot easier to bring new projects, new suburbs to the market. You can bring them to the market very quickly. And in those cities and those states where there's very significant restrictions on building new supply, house prices are much higher. So, I mean, we have a live living experiment, not just in the whole country of the U.S. and in Canada. I mean, Ottawa, we allow new suburbs. We're creating new suburbs on the edges of Ottawa. And my daughter just bought her first starter home, garden home, row house, townhouse, whatever you call it, on the edge of Ottawa for about $400,000. Lovely, lovely starter home. And Toronto and Vancouver are deliberately trying to stop that from happening. And there are people making public speeches in these cities that constantly rail against, quote, urban sprawl, suburban sprawl, and how they've got to stop it. That's just an an, an assault, an, an attempt to stop people that haven't bought a home from migrating out to the burbs to buy their first starter home. And that's the fundamental problem. And if we don't address that problem, the, the very high prices in Toronto and Vancouver are not going to go away. Great. Thanks very much for sharing your thoughts on that. And the final item I wanted to talk about for the NDP is implementing a 15% foreign buyer's tax on the purchase of residential property. And I know we already have a foreign buyer's tax in the greater Golden Horseshoe, as well as there's a foreign buyer's tax in Vancouver area there. But I would imagine they want to implement it all across the country. So just wanted to quickly get your thoughts on that, Ian, and how do they even define a foreign buyer? I mean, it just seems like a nightmare to administer. It's not just a nightmare to administer, and there, and there is. There's all kinds of administrative issues. What's a foreign buyer? Uh, I'm not being flippant. Uh, a person who emigrates to Canada for, cannot even become a citizen for its three or four years. So they're a foreigner by definition. So we're going to whack new Canadians coming to Canada. But it's the larger issue. There's a philosophical issue. They're trying to demonize foreigners. This is rank discrimination against foreign people. I thought that we were the country that didn't believe 
and discrimination. I thought we really believed in the Charter of Rights and the equality of all with all. And here we are trying to not only demonize, but penalize and discriminate against foreigners. Why? Because they're foreigners. It's not because of anything they did. It's because of who they are. Now, we've long believed that when you discriminate against somebody because of who they are, such as their skin color, such as their religion, such as their sexual identity, we've long believed that that is really, really wrong. And here we have a political party that's long prided itself on its commitment to social justice, and it is advocating a policy that will discriminate against people because of who they are or where they're from. They're not from Canada. They're foreigners. You know, those damn furners, you know, and I just think that this is uh, uh, this is wrong. This is not who we are as Canadians. Yes, very well said, Ian. I couldn't have said it better myself. Great. We've talked about the three main political parties, and I'm just going to put you a bit on the spot. But since you're a professor, I was just wondering if you could grade the three political parties platforms in terms of housing. You could give them an A to F grade, starting with the conservative liberals and NDP. Feel free to assign them whatever grade you'd like. Sure. I'm going to give the, uh, no, I will. I'm going to give the conservatives probably a B minus, and they're the best of the lot, which isn't saying very much, is it? So a B minus is uh, is an okay grade, but not a, a great grade. It's not an A. It's not a B plus. And I would give the liberals a C, and I would give the NDP probably a C minus. Great. At least nobody got an F. A I didn't plus, fail anybody, sure. but, but <laughs> nobody got an A either, by the way, or an A or a B plus. So it's because none of them address the fundamental problem in our country on real estate and home ownership. We are refusing to address the fundamental imbalance in supply and demand, specifically and particularly in the two largest cities and markets in Canada, Toronto and Vancouver. And they continue to live in this bubble that you can restrict the supply in their uh, zeal to stop urban sprawl, as they pejoratively call it, and they think that there's no consequences. And there are enormous consequences when you deliberately restrict the supply of housing to the market so that there's less housing available than there is demand for housing. You make the prices go up. And there are lots of cities in this country where the house prices are much, much lower than Toronto or Vancouver and in the States when you control for the exchange rate differential. And you cannot argue that it is the cost of materials because the cost of materials are pretty net. There's national market prices now for lumber and two by fours and spray foam insulation and roofing materials. These are not, quote, regional markets where there's a huge difference from one one part of the country to the next. A two by four, except for very small differences in shipping costs or gyprock or drywall or uh, asphalt shingles, is pretty standard across the country. What varies and causes the variation is government policy that restricts the supply of demand. So I'm going to set up my, and I'll close with this. Here's my if you will, my, my argument to everybody. If you want to look at the markets that have the least expensive housing of major cities, we're not talking cities of 5,000 people. We're talking, you know, cities of a million and up. Those with the least expensive uh, house prices have the most liberal policies towards growth and development of new homes and new suburbs. And those cities with the most restrictive policies on growth and new suburbs have the most expensive house prices. And we're talking Toronto and we're talking Vancouver. 
So they, the people there, ordinary people are being harmed and hurt very badly by these policies of those people who have decided that growth and, quote, urban sprawl is a bad thing. And this is hurting a lot of of Canadians. Ian, it's been great having you on the show. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? I have a website. It's at my university, just at the Spot School of Business at Carleton. And I have some of my recent uh, publications there. And I'm working on uh, an article on the automobile industry in Canada and why it's in decline vis-a-vis Mexico and vis-a-vis the United States. But I have had a long, as you can tell by this conversation, I've had a lifelong interest in the real estate market as a former mortgage manager where I lent millions and millions of dollars. I've written op-eds on this. I have testified multiple times before the House of Commons Finance Committee on this subject, and I hope to do so in future, because I think we're going down the wrong road on home ownership in the two biggest markets because of their refusal to acknowledge the negative impact of government restrictions on supply in terms of affordability. This is a a government-made crisis, a policy-made crisis in our country that is hurting a lot of people in our two biggest cities. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host, I'm also an independent mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, co-workers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. Email me at sean, that's S-E-A-N, at burnyourmortgage.ca or call or text me at 647-867-3711 for a free mortgage consultation. Also, be sure to head on over to www.burnyourmortgage.ca and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you with all your mortgage needs. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning.